James chapter 4. We'll stand again in just a second to uh, read the passage. Uh, We come tonight, as I mentioned earlier, if you were in here doing the announcements, it is probably these four verses that we're going to look at, verses 13 through 17, one of the simplest passages in a book that's really full of simple sanity for our spirituality and in Jesus Christ. But I trust that uh, along the way, what we're going to see this evening in in brief compass is uh, much instruction for our ordinary life in Jesus Christ. And so let's stand together as we want to read verse 13 and 15, uh, 13 through 17. I'll read it for us and then pray for God's blessing and, and we'll begin. So here now as God does speak to us once again. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whatever one knows is the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's pray once again together. Father, we... I want to be reminded again this evening that life indeed is a a fleeing vapor. It is a chasing after the wind in comparison to your everlasting kingdom and your eternal character. So help us with humility and meekness to respond to this word, trusting our lives into your sovereign hands. And we do pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I've had the occasion in recent weeks to be reading this, this old diary from an old pastor. and he, he was a pastor that was well known in his time. He was a pastor that had probably singular gifting in his generation of gospel ministry. He was thus a pastor that was very much in demand throughout his denomination. Uh, Rarely would a year seemingly go by without some bigger church calling him to come be their pastor. And as I've been reading through this diary, it's, it's been quite interesting to see how he interacts with these various opportunities, these calls that God brings upon his life. Because given his gifting, given his genuine ambition that he says in the diary also is this like plaguing sin of pride, uh, you would almost think that he would be somewhat maneuvering things in a certain way and perhaps pursuing things in a certain way to, to make these calls to bigger and better and greener pastures come to fruition. But I came to a point in one of his diary entries that was quite striking, specifically as it relates to his own personal understanding of calling and entrusting his future to the Lord. He says, it's always been my aim and my prayer to have no plans with regard to myself, well assured as I am that the place where Christ seems right to place me must ever be the best place for me. And that language of no plans with regard to myself, it's italicized in the original. It's almost like he's underscoring it for his very heart's attention. I have no plans with regard to my future endeavors. And it seems to be, in many ways, a 
approach to the future that James agrees with in our passage tonight at the end of of chapter 4. I hope if you've kind of been working with us along the way through James, you've seen something that we might uh, say reverently is the earthiness that belongs to uh, James's teaching because there's just this relentless practicality to everything that he's saying. It's as though he has no problem, not that any author in scripture does, but uh, James seems to always be okay getting down to the muck and the mire of ordinary life. He's always wanted to poke and prod on just those basic things of what it means to strive to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, of, of increasing in disciples after uh, the Lord's image and he's turning his attention to something that as we're going to mention along the way today has, has no small number of times, hours even throughout the week that it preoccupies our attention, namely how we think about the future. Because I suppose if we were to speak after the service tonight, it's quite likely that many of you, specifically the adults at least, would have perhaps an application on your phone that's like this to-do list app. It's got everything that you're going to do tomorrow and everything that you need to do on Tuesday and perhaps it's something more analog in your life. It's not an app on your phone. It's kind of just a planner that you carry around in your backpack or briefcase or in your purse and it's in that planner that you have you know, all of the objectives for the day, the ambitions for the week. And uh, what James is doing here at the end of chapter four, it's as though he's taking those applications and taking those planners and he's wanting to sanctify them. Uh, Here's how you are to think about your future ambitions. Here's how you are to approach your future endeavors. And he's going to simply summarize a godly approach to the future with two words, Lord willing. That's a very simple phrase that he's going to bring before our attention. And students, you might know that you could be around Christians, I suppose, that could use this phrase of Lord willing. And it's almost a self-righteous slogan. Uh, But if you understand it in sincerity and with genuine obedience, you're going to see along the way how it does radically reorient your thoughts about future ambitions, endeavors, plans, and preparations. And that's what James wants us to see tonight. So I've got three simple words to mark off our, our text. Uncertainty, brevity, and sovereignty. And these really are just three truths that James wants Christians to know when they come to think about the future. So we could say that the theme is from our passage tonight is how a Christian thinks about the future. And we consider the future in light of life's uncertainty, life's brevity, and the Lord's sovereignty. But because it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in James, taking a break, a break last week for, for prayer night, let's remember where we are in chapter 4. If you just kind of glance up to the preceding 12 verses in this text, you, you might remember that it was this series of command after command after command that James was giving his original hearers. And if your Bible's like mine, it might summarize that section, that first two-thirds of chapter 4 under the heading of warnings against worldliness. And that's a pretty good way of summarizing what he's said before. What, what James has been trying to do, as we've talked about in weeks past, from the beginning of the letter, he's trying to paint the portrait of how it is that genuine Christianity is a genuine counterculture in the world. That as we live according to Christ's command and as we live fervently and faithfully as his people, how it is that every facet of our life is going to be radically different than the way in which the world thinks about ordinary facets of life. So you remember back to chapter 1, it's of course for the Christian to count trials and temptations as 
There's reasons for joy because God is using those testing moments to make us more like Jesus Christ. It's to the Christian when God's word and, and will comes clear into our lives that we're to submit to it with, with humility and meekness, not just his word, but also in our faith, showing it in actions and deeds, not just our faith, but also our wisdom. You remember even in, in chapter three, it's the language of a true godliness in the Christian life. It belongs to this kind and and patient, and, and charitable tongue. And then you remember really where he left off almost in a summary fashion, verse 10 of chapter 4 is amplifying how the Christian life is one of profound humility, which I do hope, kids, you understand as you walk in humility, you will always be a counterculture to the world. As he commands in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And those commands related to humility, now seemingly meets these commands related to the prideful people that James is addressing. And the prideful people now need to reckon with, first of all, life's uncertainty. Look at verse 13. He begins by simply saying, come now. I don't know if that really communicates the passion of the original. It's got brusque kind of abruptness in the original. Maybe a better way we could translate it today for our attention is, pay attention, listen up. Right, he's trying to get everyone's minds and gaze fixated on him. And who does he have in mind? Well, come now. Look at the verse as it continues. You who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. So students, if you look down at verse 13, what kind of person is James uniquely addressing here in verse 13? People that plan to make profits. Well, it's businessmen, or more normal to that ancient first century. It's, it's merchants, people that would always be going out planning for the next week, the next month, the next year. We're going to go to this place, then go to this place, and we're going to make this much money here and, and this much money there. And evidently, there are a number of Christian merchants that would have been in James's original audience, and he's sent something in their spirituality that we might call is, is ignorant of life's uncertainty. What, you say you're just going to go do this? You say you'll go over there. But look at how verse 14 continues the thought. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. We could surely spend, couldn't we, quite a long time tonight. Maybe you'll do that after the service. Uh, sharing ways in which life has met with interruptions along the way. According to your plans and preparations going awry. I mean, you could say, couldn't you, that even the recent experience with the COVID pandemic was one giant interruption to humanity's plans and preparations. Uh, no doubt it would have been true of many businessmen and merchants that said, well, this year we're going to make this. In August of 2020, we're going to do this. In December of 2020, we're going to, 2020, we're going to return this quarterly profit. And then COVID strikes and everything just disappears seemingly at the snap of a finger. I mean, you know, don't you too, that there were many athletic competitions for which athletes had prepared for years and years, perhaps some of them even their whole lifetime, and suddenly those were postponed, even, even canceled, plans and preparations altogether washed away. And even just recent weeks, wasn't it? Uh, just a few days ago, a winter storm blows through, interrupts ordinary plans and, and preparations. And, and James is saying, aren't you aware of the fact that you have no idea what tomorrow will bring? That you have no idea what next month will greet you with. And so as it is exhorting us to hear is just this humility and holding our plans loosely before the Lord. 
openly before the Lord, knowing that life is altogether uncertain. He wants us to know not just about life's uncertainty, but you'll see, of course, in verse 15, it's life's brevity. Verse 14, I'm sorry, notice how he continues. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The word there for mist, it really is more like smoke or vapor. Kids, I wonder if you've ever made s'mores before. If you come over to our house, it's quite likely we'll build a fire in the backyard and put globs of sugar on a stick and let you roast it. And parents and grandparents, you know, and kids, you know this too. It's certainly true. Whenever you kind of get people around the fire and you begin to roast the marshmallows, invariably someone's going to leave the marshmallow in the fire for too long and they kind of pull it out and are shocked and stunned to find it on fire and smoking. And then they just like shake the thing around. Of course, as fast as it caught flame, it disappears, doesn't it? That fire and that smoke and... And what James is telling us is the exact same true of our life, isn't it? It's just, a, it's just a vapor. It's just a smoke. A wind that passes by. Uh, you might live in God's providence and kindness, should the Lord tarry. You, you, you might live to reach 90 years old, which in our context and time, it's a ripe old age, isn't it? You might sit around perhaps even with great-grandchildren at that time and think about the many things that the Lord has done in your life. But I do hope that By the time you might get there, you might realize what are nine decades in comparison to thousands and thousands of years of human history? It's just a smoke. What are nine decades in comparison to God's everlasting kingdom? It's just a mist that vanishes. The way in which we ought to think about the future isn't just about life's uncertainty, but at the same time, think about life's brevity. And perhaps this is one way in which we as, as Christians and uh, well-intended believers do find a, a unique countercultural reality to our world. Of course, in its secular ideology that just thinks about the future, divorced from God, and therefore approaches life as though it's always going to continue in peace and, and prosperity. And, and Christian parents throughout the ages have understood one of the best things we can do to help train our children to think differently than the world and live faithfully in the world. As we remind to them, we remind them of the brevity of life, that they might not be here next year. I remember a time when Hudson, our oldest, was two, and maybe when he was one, and we were praying for him at his birthday uh, dinner, and I remember praying something to the effect of, Lord, we thank you for his first year of life, and we pray that we'll get another one. And my twin sister said, Jordan, you are so morbid. Why would you ever say anything like that? And I just told her, Marin, you just don't know, do you? And some of that comes from my own experience and things I've read and frankly, pastoring churches where it seems like every year someone that was here last year at this time is now not here at this, this time this year. You know, I was with a group of pastors not long ago. There was quite a number of us in the room and they were asking us some questions for icebreaker-like purposes. And you get a bunch of gospel ministers in the room and an icebreaker becomes, what was the best book that you read that led you into gospel ministry? And, and there was multiple different answers given, uh, multiple wonderful books that were, were mentioned. And, and I was the only one that mentioned something uh, that seemingly felt out of the ordinary, as I said. Well, it was under God's providence, the book that he used to drive me into ministry in a certain way was George Marsden's biography of Jonathan Edwards. And it's this kind of boring academic book that's quite long. And 
Nevertheless, the Lord used it in a powerful way. And one of the stories that I still to this day remember most that I discovered in that life of Jonathan Edwards was a letter that he wrote to his son, Jonathan Jr., when Jonathan was turning 10 years old. So it was his 10-year birthday. And Jonathan Jr. at the time was with this missionary group that was taking the gospel to Native Americans west of the Hudson up in New England. And it was just a week before that one of Jonathan's close friends, Jonathan Jr.'s close friends named David, he had died suddenly and unexpectedly. In a way that Father Jonathan can only do, he, he wrote to his son on his birthday exhortations and encouragements. And towards the end, he says this, quote, this is a loud call, David's death. This is a loud call of God for you to prepare for your death. You see that they that are young, they die, as well as those that are old. David was not very much older than you. We hope that God will preserve your life and health, that he'll return you to Stockbridge again in safety. But always remember that life is uncertain, and you know not how soon you must die, and therefore have always need to be ready and as that letter continues, the, the readiness that he's exhorting his 10-year-old son to is, is closing with Jesus Christ, it's experienced the, the new birth by the Spirit, it's conversion to the Lord, repenting of sin and trusting in the Savior. And you know not long, you know not how long your life will be. Perhaps the Lord will tarry, and it'll be decades and decades more. For some of you in the room, even of this size tonight, it's quite likely, isn't it, that you might not make it another decade. And life's brevity is meant to urge you to consider, are you ready to meet the Lord when he comes to take you? So it's not just the Lord's, I'm sorry, life's uncertainty and brevity, but we want to see now verse 15 and 16, the Lord's sovereignty. The Lord's sovereignty informs the way in which we think about the future. Look at verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. There's so much packed into that simple verse there, isn't there? In, in verse 15, in students and children, it really is that simple to understand the Lord's sovereignty in your life. What it means is though, tomorrow night, I have soccer practice, you tell your classmate, if the Lord wills. You know, tomorrow, we'll take our test, if the Lord wills. Uh, next summer, we'll go on this vacation, if the Lord wills. And it's not meant to be this kind of cheesy approach to spirituality, is it? But this sincere, genuine desire to recognize that God controls history. But you see, even at the end of verse 15, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So he's not removing plans. He's not removing preparations. Uh, many of you are planners to such a degree that I suppose I could go to you after the service tonight and say, well, what are you going to be doing about 5 p.m. on Tuesday night this week? Or what are you going to be doing at 9.30 a.m. on Friday morning? And uh, I'm sure that some of you would be able to say with some degree of probability and confidence, well, I'll be doing this at that time on Tuesday, and I'll be doing this at that time on Friday. And that is an okay thing. Well, what James is not saying is don't prepare, don't plan but what he is saying is you must plan and prepare with reference to God's sovereignty that the probability of what you're going to do tomorrow must reckon with the possibility that God might change that plan, that God might introduce some interruption. And God's sovereignty doesn't apply just to future situations of planning. You see in verse 16 and 17, it applies to present realities of obedience because he says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. 
A number of scholars think about that kind of phrase, sentence really in verse 17 as, as almost an early church proverb for Christian obedience. If you know the right thing to do and fail to do it, well, then for you it is sin. But it's connected, isn't it, with that little word so at the beginning of verse 17, connected to our immediate context. And so uh, the simple takeaway that you want to grab from these two verses for you tonight is in the preaching of this text and the studying of this word, God has delivered to you truth that calls for your obedience. Therefore, for you to live tomorrow, as if the Lord's not in control of Tuesday, is to live in sin. For you to live tomorrow, as if the Lord's not in control of the month of March, is sinful as well. Three simple truths, aren't they, for how we think about the future as God's people. Life's uncertainty and brevity, and the Lord's sovereignty as well. You know what, what James is exhorting us to is something I saw depicted before my eyes just a few weeks ago. We had a wedding here, New Year's Day. And it was the first wedding that I've officiated where the bride seemingly went missing. We started much later than we anticipated. It was all fine and understandable. The Lord interrupted her afternoon plans related to styling her hair and she got here later than usual. Well, we were talking, Keisha, our office manager, and I, with uh, the dear brother that cleans this building on Saturday night. And uh, we're kind of effusive in our apology because we were interrupting his plans. And after like the third time of expressing sorrow and apologies for sorry, you know, we just can't control this and it's going to happen. It's just going to take a while longer. Uh, he, he said with all godly, genuine sincerity, he pointed his finger at us and said, don't you apologize for that. He says, my Bible says that anything the Lord brings into my life is for my good. Don't you dare apologize for those interruptions. Yes, sir. <laughs> you are correct. You are correct. So what James warns us to here at the end, number one, he warns us against presumption. Two final takeaways as we begin to close. That's really what he's saying, isn't it? He's warning us against presumption because what is that spiritual weed that he means to root out from our hearts? Look at it again, verse 16, where he tells us simply, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And it is in the immediate context, seemingly, that James has in mind these Christian merchants, these well-intended yet arrogant church members who were businessmen there in the first century. But we dare not think that it's only in our time, businessmen and employers and workers that might be tempted to this degree of sinful planning. Because we can do it, can't we, in churches too? I have some good friends right now that minister in a local church context that's just booming. I mean, it is just wonderful to see the Lord's work amidst these faithful brothers. And because of the boom, they're rightly and wisely beginning to expand their congregation. And they were talking to me about this recently. And they were telling me about these 10-year plans that they had for this expansion project. And I said, you know, in, in 10 years, we're going to have planted three churches. In 10 years, we're going to have funded a Bible translation. In 10 years, we'll have sent out 10 international missionaries. In 10 years, we're going to have 1,500 active church members. In 10 years, we're going to have 80 community groups. And I thought to myself, you know, that's good. I don't even think it's wrong to talk about it in that way. But guys, the way you're Talking about it seems as though it's something that you're going to accomplish, not as though something you're praying for the Lord to accomplish 
in your midst. So often isn't it true that it's the way in which we talk about our plans that can reveal the presumption, the boasting, and the arrogance in our hearts. It's not just a warning against presumption. What you want to see, secondly, is he invites us to submission. That's what you want to see here at the end. He invites us to submission. You know, if you glance back up to what he's actually just said only a few sentences before in verse 6, it really is, as we mentioned weeks ago, the gospel according to James, he says that God gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And you'll submit your plans, you'll submit your preparations, you'll submit your life to God insofar as you believe and understand and agree that he actually is full of grace towards his people. That no matter those interruptions that come along the way, they are for your good. No matter those calamities that unexpectedly strike, they are for your increasing Christ-likeness. And so when you think about life's uncertainty and you think about life's brevity, always reckon with God's sovereignty in Jesus Christ, because it was in Jesus Christ that we've found that grace, that we've been given that grace that belongs to those who humbly submit to God's sovereignty, because it's in the midst of life's uncertainty that the Lord Jesus Christ came and gave us that which is fundamentally certain, which is the washing away of sin, adoption into the Father's family, seeing the king forever in his beauty and blessedness. It's in the brevity of life that the Lord Jesus came and with his hands of grace he offers out to arrogant, boastful sinners, planners and preparers like you and me. He offers out with his hands of grace an everlasting kingdom and eternal righteousness at his right hand. If you would but turn to him and trust in him, So you want to hear these truths about the future and find the Spirit working them into your heart in such a way that there's openness and obedience towards God as you think more and more about tomorrow because we're going to make it there if the Lord wills. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would prepare us always for what you have laid out before us with hands that are open and hearts that are eager to submit to your kind providence and sovereignty in our lives. Forgive us for the ways in which we have made plans and preparations, ignorant of of your sovereignty and, and power. Lord, give us that humility that is always eager and ready to say, Lord, willing as we go about our future thinking. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.